Hello and welcome to episode five of the Paul Norton podcast. Now, today's podcast is a very special episode. Reason is I have a very special guest who is going to come on and talk about all things female and also in Peace West and her journey. This girl is a registered nutritionist in New Zealand. She also is the host of the PCUS podcast. You'll find her on Instagram and on Facebook. Today's guest is Claire Goodwin, and I hope you really enjoy it. So it's great to have you like on this podcast, I guess. And for anyone who's know, like Claire is a PCUS um, expert in New Zealand, and kind of excited, a bit nervous, but excited to kind of have you here to just chat about like all things female and PCOS and what you've gone through. And I think as we just discussed before, like it's a, it's just a bit of a topic that there's not a lot of information about, and especially good information. Mm. So it'd be great to, obviously I want to welcome you onto the podcast and I guess tell us a bit about you and your journey. Mm, thanks Paul. Yeah, it's great to be here too. So um, I started life, uh, I graduated as a, as, as a registered nutritionist. So my degree was in nutrition and exercise science. Um, that was at Otago University. And then, but at the time when I was doing that, I was also competing internationally for New Zealand, firstly in track and field. Um, so 5,000 metres was my distance of choice for, um, I don't know what I did in a former life to deserve that distance, but that was my um, distance there. And then when I quickly realised I probably wasn't going to be uh, able to compete with the Ethiopians on that level, I moved into triathlon. Um, and so I competed for New Zealand many years in triathlon then as well. And it was during that time that things started to not make sense with my body. So I was gaining weight, especially around my midsection, um, to the point where it was just like this insidious sort of year after year, like nothing would ever come off, but it would just go up by, you know, a couple of kilos every year. And it just didn't make sense. As I said, I, you know, just graduated, I was studying and then graduating from my nutrition degree. And I learned throughout that, that people that gain weight, are eating too much and exercising too little, you know, that whole calorie yes. equation thing. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. I've been in a calorie deficit for the last five years. Like, look, you know, I train in triathlon, you train twice a day, um, Monday to Monday to Thursday. And then Saturday is like a four or five hour swim bike run. And then Sunday could be a three to four hour cycle. So I was training up to 21 hours a week. Um, and I knew that, you know, my calories were a lot less than what I should have been expending. And therefore it just wasn't making sense to me. Um, and then, other things didn't make sense, like my period went missing, even though my body weight wasn't low. And everyone, you know, doctors kept telling me it was because I was an athlete, but I was reading everything at uni at the time was saying, no, you had to have a, a really low body fat percentage to lose your period. And then also when I then started like in my 20s, mid, 20, mid to late 20s, was still getting acne, especially around sort of my mouth and jawline. And I was like, this isn't, you know, it should, it should be gone by now, right? I shouldn't have to put up this with this now. Yeah. And so that's when, and I'd been to the doctor multiple times throughout this journey about all of those different things, but it finally took one doctor to kind of look at me and, and go, hold on, let's just run a couple of hormone tests for you here. And I think she was, she could already pick it up um, based on my symptoms. She, and she was just a pretty good, pretty good doctor at picking this up. And she ran the test and she was like, yes, you've got this thing called polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, and I was like, what? I've never heard of this. Like I've just, you know, spent the last five years studying health and I've never heard of this condition. What is it? Sounds big, it sounds scary. Um, and then, yeah, and then the, I was like, great, well, finally I've got this diagnosis about why I, you know, keep gaining weight and getting acne. Cool. What do I take to fix it? She was like, um, so we can put you on the birth control pill to get your period back. Um, and I can probably give you this like antibiotic to... Um, clear your skin up and I was like yeah I've been on that before mm, doesn't really work or it does but I don't really want to be on antibiotics my whole life yeah. um, and she was like yeah so cool so that's what we'll do and I was like oh what about the weight gain and she was like oh well um, you'll just have to try like it's it, I know it's hard but you'll just have to try uh, and I was like well what do you mean try I'm already like exercising more than I'm eating what else can I do and she was just like, uh, I don't really know. She put me on a, a drug called metformin, which is a um, drug for people with prediabetes. Because yep. also she did diagnose me with 
um, insulin resistance or pre-diabetes at the same time. So this is when I was, you know, 25, an elite athlete and pre-diabetic. And I was like, hold on. So how does that work? Because I just spent the last five years learning that people that develop pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes are eating too many donuts and watching too much reality TV. Like that is the picture that I've been painted yes. the last five years. So how does that work? And it was kind of that combination of then I really just struggled for the next 10 years trying to find answers to this when, you know, th those, the outcomes that she gave me didn't really work and no one else could give me those outcomes. So I was like, well, I've kind of got to figure this out for myself because I'm not getting it from anyone else. And that's what led me to A, understand my symptoms more and B, then go on and specialize in this and as my sole job now is just in this one condition. Yes. And I guess the big, big thing for me is, I suppose leading to the next question is like, what is PCOS? Because I think the number is like, isn't it 10% of women suffer from PCOS? And there's so much like females, like just don't really know if they have it or they don't know the symptoms. So it'd be quite good just to like, from your point of view, like what PCOS actually is. Yeah. So PCOS is, um, it's a really bad name for it. So PCOS means polycystic ovary syndrome, which just means, um, really what it is is more of an excess of testosterone in the female body that's actually really what it should be called is something like androgenic metabolic syndrome is basically your like sex hormones get a bit um, out of balance so primarily generally testosterone increases and even if that's not really showing on the blood work it's that's kind of what's happening and then the the kind of effect is that it has multiple effects on your lots of other parts of your body so your reproduction and your um, your periods and um, and things like that. The cysts on the ovaries, really all they are is little baby eggs that when you don't ovulate, they kind of get stuck on the ovary and stay there. So um, they're just, they're not the cause of it. They are a symptom of it. They're just kind of collateral damage in the whole and sex hormone metabolic uh, sort of vicious storm that's going on in your body. And so they then the name really puts a, a bad focus on that people think like i know when i got diagnosed i was like felt such a victim because i was like well i can't do anything about it i can't get into my body and like get those cysts off my ovaries that are causing all this issue yes and so i you know i was thinking that they were causing the issue whereas actually they're just a symptom of it they're not the ones causing the high testosterone or anything like that um so you can have those cysts on the ovaries without having the syndrome and this is because Many women, most actually most women, so it's about, well, not most, 20, a quarter of all women will have cysts on their ovaries at some point in time, these baby follicles. So um, that's just because we, most of us don't ovulate every cycle all the time. And so these kind of cysts can collect. And so really the syndrome is when you've got those, you know, one out of three things. So this is the way that they diagnose PCOS is that you either have yeah. the cysts on the ovaries and or irregular or missing periods and or um, the high testosterone or high androgens when they measure your blood or you've got symptoms of so you've got acne around your chin and jawline or you've got irregular hair growth around your again chin and jawline chest nipples kind of areas that you wouldn't females wouldn't normally grow here and uh, the other one would be another really common symptom would be thinning hair in the part or on the crown of the head so those are kind of the symptoms of the high androgens. And so it's a really, um, it's a bit of an airy-fairy diagnosis because as a syndrome, it's kind of like irritable bowel syndrome. If any yes. of you have been diagnosed with that, you kind of know what it's like. It's basically, the questions are, have you had bloating or abdominal pain three times in the last month? And you'd be like, yes. And they're like, okay, cool, you've got IBS. It's like, great, so what do I do about it? And they're like, well, uh, there's nothing really we can do for you. So you're just going to have to manage that. Maybe go and see a dietitian and go onto a low FODMAP diet. So that's kind of the same thing. A syndrome is really just a group of symptoms that um, the medical profession can kind of group together to give it a name so that they understand it. It's not the same thing as like a disease like cancer, which progresses in the same way for every individual. Um, yes. And that's why it's a really hard condition for a conventional medical doctor to treat because it's not the same in all of us. We're all different in terms of how we have developed PCOS sort of what I term the root cause and then um, and then the treatment obviously will then differ depending on kind of what that root cause is yeah and, and even that, as you were saying with PCOS I also have some clients who have just polyacetic ovaries as well so there's a bit of a difference between the two isn't there what's the main difference in the two and PCOS and polyacetic ovaries so the difference is that 
the syn polycystic ovarian syndrome is when you have the three things or two out of the three things. So you have the irregular periods and also the um, the cysts on the ovaries or and or the androgen, high androgens. There's poly, just the polycystic ovaries. So when they do an ultrasound, they're like, oh, you've got cysts on your ovaries. That's just basically, oh, you haven't ovulated at one point in time. Cool. So it might, there might be an issue behind that. Maybe it's something else called sort of hypothalamic amenorrhea, um, which is basically, so your hypothalamus is your brain, amenorrhea is missing periods. So it's basically your brain telling your body not to ovulate because there's some problem. So whether that's that you're not eating enough, your stress levels are too high, are generally the two things that your body will tell you not to ovulate for. And that's purely a survival mechanism. It's like, mm. if it's not good enough food, it's not good enough, like well, it's too high stress, it'll be like, whoa, 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 this is not a good environment to be in, to be A, I've got to survive myself, let alone trying to carry a baby around on my back. So it is, you know, it's a real survival mechanism that we have to, um, to help us. So that's really the main difference is that the syndrome, what we're really looking for there is those other symptoms of missing irregular periods um, and or like generally those kind of high androgens or symptoms of. So how does the difference is how, so that, what's the big difference in like, just say a female looking to lose weight and then also with like exercise, because I know like there's a lot of my clients with PCOS, like they're probably really good at resistance training, like, and they get some really, you know, they get some really good weight. So what'd be the difference in the, in the two, if for someone looking to lose fat and lose weight and even with progressing in their weightlifting? Mm, yeah. Yeah. So I think probably the reason why um find a lot of, lot of, females with PCOS are really good sports people is because mm. we've got that high testosterone. Um, and also there's some really interesting, I was reading interesting research I was reading last week about um, the, that our opioid system in our brain might be slightly different as well. And therefore our pain tolerance might be a lot higher. So that's something that I definitely think look back and I go, wow, probably that's a likely a reason why I was able to push harder and longer than many of my competitors. Um, so it can be a bit of a performance advantage, but the reason that it's for most women that they really struggle with weight loss is because of that root cause thing. So about 80% of women with PCOS also have insulin resistance. And that's what I was talking about before. That's what I got diagnosed yeah. with as well. And um, it's the combination of high insulin and high testosterone that causes a really vicious cycle in female bodies that make it really hard to lose weight. So what happens is we don't quite know what's the chicken and what's the egg um, in mm. each individual, but gen what we think happens is that if you're genetically predisposed to developing PCOS, which is the case for, you know, we think that most women have that genetic predisposition that, do, that go on to develop PCOS is because of those genes, but also there's, um, so they, they have this genetic predisposition, predisposition, their testosterone rises, and then that then makes insulin rise. So insulin is your hormone that controls how much it's sort of i think about it an easy way to think about it is your fat storage hormone so yeah. when you eat its role is to go cool you don't need all of that now for energy i'm going to go and store some of that away later and then you can come back and get it when you need it later right so its job is the is the storing part um and when insulin is high that also stimulates your so what happens in sorry i should go back what happens in pcos and insulin resistance is that Insulin should rise basically once you've eaten, it's taking some of those, that carbohydrate especially and going yes. and storing it away in your cells so that you can use it for later. Um, but in, if you've got insulin resistance, it's like when, um, think about it like your, the little insulin molecules are like an Uber driver and they're going to pick you up from town and take you home. And when they get home, this Uber driver is really nice. He gets out and he actually goes and knocks on your front door to make sure that someone's home and lets you in. But the problem is, is that the person at home, the doorman can't hear you when you've got insulin resistance. And so the Uber driver is banging on the door and it's not opening. And yeah. so he's like, okay, I'm going to call in some reinforcements. So he calls up all his other Uber mates around and be like, hey, can you come and help me bang on this door? The doorman's not waking up. So I need some, you, you here so we can bang louder. Right. So he recruits all the other insulin to come and help. And so insulin gets higher and higher and higher. And so that's kind of what's happening in insulin resistance. It's like that the dormant's not, you know, not opening. If that then progresses all the way into type two diabetes, it means that basically the, the Uber driver's gone, you know what, stuff it, I'm out. Like, I'm not gonna come and pick you up from town anymore. It's too much hassle and it stops working. So the insulin stops working, right? So the, um, 
in when what happens when insulin rises that also stimulates your ovaries to overproduce more testosterone so you've got testosterone then stimulating insulin insulin stimulating testosterone and, and there's no kind of negative feedback mechanism in your body so nothing's there telling it to not keep rising and so it just keeps getting higher uh -huh. and higher and higher and higher and one of the other hormones so you know this paul is that when you know, the hormones and governed with when it comes to weight loss. So yeah. when it comes to weight loss is that you have to be in a calorie deficit, right? Like you've yeah. got a, you've, you've got to, your body has to have a signal to go and say, right, you've got to go and use some of your stored fat and burn that. But there's got to be a signal to tell. So that's a signal to tell your body to go and burn that stored fat is when you're eating too little for what you're demanding it to do. Yeah. So if your body is, if, if you're burning 2,200 calories a day and you're only eating 1,800, then your body has to make up that deficit from yes. somewhere, right? So it's like um, a bank account, you know, so you've got $2,200 in there. You actually only, um, you're, you know, you're trying to save. So what you're trying to do is actually you're trying to save sort of $500 and your expenses are $1,500 or in the, and sorry, in this case, $1,700. Yeah. And um, what happens is that you should be able to save that extra $500. But what happens is in the body is that what we don't account for is the fact that this bank account has the most just complex, amazing computer algorithm already working in there. And so it actually then can make decisions on its own. So it can up and down regulate your metabolism. It can change hormones based on whether it thinks that you can actually go ahead and lose weight. And some of those hormones governing that are insulin and glucagon is a really, um, is a really important one in the fat burning process as well. And insulin and glucagon work in opposition to each other. So when you're st storing, you know how I was saying that, you know, insulin's a storing, fat storing hormone. Glucagon is a fat burning hormone. So they work like a seesaw. So when it's up, the other has to be down. So if insulin's constantly high, then glucagon can never rise. And so you're relying on your body actually being able to, as I said, in that deficit, being actually able to go and grab that stored fat and burn it. But to yes. do that, glucagon has to be high. And so in this case, is that you're trying to save that $500 or burn that extra 500 calories, but your body's like, but I can't because insulin's too high. And so it's like, well, you know, I know that you, I know what you want me to do, but I can't do that. And I'm not going to do that because I can't get access to it. So instead, I'm going to have to reduce your metabolism down because there's no other way of meeting that deficit apart from me actually just reducing that deficit in reducing that metabolic rate down because so you know previously you're burning 200 to 2200 well now i'm going to reduce that down so you are now only burning 1800 i can do i can make do with an extra 100 deficit that's not a big deal for me right and so, that's that's how it can work that's an, it's an interesting analogy about the uber driver and like it definitely makes a lot more sense to be fair doesn't it and i guess like from that then with with insulin resistance because there's a big kind of, if you look online, it's about, you know, you need to be cutting carbohydrates down, you need to have no potatoes, no rice. And to me, that's, it feels like it's kind of, sometimes it's kind of, it's kind of, it's like scares people too much. Like I've got some clients at Peace West, like, and they have lots of carbs during the day. They've got good proteins, good fats, and they're doing really well. But a lot of females I spoke to that are really with Peace West, like, and insulin resistance is that they're really afraid to have carbs and, you know, have that kind of refined carbs in case something bad happens. And, It'd be good to what from your experience like what's what's worked for you and your clients with nutrition and supplements and stuff yeah so i'd say that the main things is like really it's trying to improve that insulin resistance and that we can pull many levers to try and do that right dietary is one thing so what we're trying to do is we're trying to you know if previously you're like uber drivers having to recruit a hundred of his friends to try and knock down that door we're, we're trying to reduce that so he has to call 50 and then 20 and then 10 and then finally you know it's only taking you you know an hour to open the door when previously it was taking you seven hours to open that door right so that's what we call it what we talk about improving insulin sensitivity and there's many ways that we can do this and dietary is one way that we can help to so what, we, what we're really trying to do there is trying to keep your blood sugar in an optimal level so throughout the day so it's you're not getting massive highs and massive lows and um, you don't have to cut all carbohydrates to achieve that. And most people, most people with PCOS that I work with, I would say 95% would be able to tolerate some, if not many different carbohydrates at different levels. Um, it is a bit of a spectrum. It's like, think of insulin resistance, almost like the, 
the gauge in your car of your fuel gauge it's it's very rarely either like full or empty it's generally yeah. kind of somewhere in between right so that's kind of same as insulin resistance you're very rarely either completely non-insulin resistant or you know completely insulin resistant you're kind of somewhere in the middle so we've got to figure out where you lie on that kind of insulin resistance spectrum if you're more towards the like empty in terms of that your body is having to you know recruit a hundred different uber drivers to come do that job then you're probably going to tolerate be able to tolerate less carbohydrates and maybe some you know not so refined ones but if you're on the like fuller end then you can probably tolerate a lot more than what someone else would so it's about kind of finding your sweet spot within that and and then also there's some individual variability of what carbohydrates people can tolerate um i mean i do a lot of blood glucose testing on myself and with my patients as well and it's astounding to me how you know sometimes you'd have this very similar glycemic index food um and or different things you would think are very similar like white potato versus sweet potato and someone's blood sugar might spike really high with white potato but sweet potato totally fine the next person could be completely opposite they can't tolerate sweet potato but then white potato is totally fine for them so it's, um, and all I can take that down to is individual variability because, you know, it, it, otherwise it doesn't have, there's no rhyme or reason why that would be. That's mad, isn't it? It's crazy to think like that. It's mm. two differences, isn't it? What's your mm. thoughts on supplements? Because um, I know like I've got a lot of clients in Ireland and I've got a lot of clients here and um, I've got my clients back in Ireland, like taking vitamin D because mm -hmm. like, and I, and I know that's kind of a big topic of yours is vitamin D. And I, uh, for me, like with my clients that are in, especially Australia and New Zealand and, and, and Ireland, it's crazy how people can vary. I find that the people here that I work with in Australia, they kind of tend to, they're a bit better than the people in Ireland and the people some in New Zealand. But once I start giving my clients like vitamin D kind of things start to happen, they're a bit happier in themselves. And I know that's a big topic of yours, vitamin D. Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm looking for in supplements is, again, I'm going back to that root cause thing. So if, if they are insulin resistant, so again, you know, 20% aren't. So I always have to, and what I'm doing first is testing first and go, right, what is the root cause or causes? Um, and then once I know that, then I'm kind of like, right, here are the most important things that you can do based on that root cause. So if it is insulin resistance, what I'm looking for there is, okay, what are the what are the vitamins and minerals that are essential for your Uber driver, your insulin to work properly? Because he doesn't work in isolation. He's, you know, like he's got lots of different things that he needs as kind of what that's called cofactors in that reaction to, to make it work. Vitamin D is an essential one. So your insulin receptor just doesn't work properly. The, the doorman, the doorman and the Uber driver, you know, that's the whole reason why the doorman can't wake up is because he's not got enough vitamin D. So um, when you are like, in the northern and southern hemisphere like Ireland and New Zealand where you're so far away from the um, the equator is that in the winter the angle of the sun's rays is at an angle that you even when it hits your skins even if it did if the sun did come out in Ireland which I know is not likely but even <laughs> if it did and you were able to lie out there naked all day you still would not get enough vitamin D because the angle is not at the right angle that it can actually convert vitamin D in your skin. So only kind of when it hits, and the same thing in Southern New Zealand. So this is what I, this is what we learned in Dunedin um, when I was down there, because Dunedin's a lot further south of in New Zealand. Um, and, but even in Auckland, you know, we're a kind of a, almost subtropical environment, but still yeah. here in the winter, you could lie outside and not get enough vitamin D. So it's super important. And I think it's super important for a lot of people to actually get their vitamin D checked. Mm. Outrageously in New Zealand, it's not funded by the government, vitamin D. There are so many other like tests that you can go to here at the doctor and it will be free to get tested. Vitamin D, not one of them, crazy. But you can pay for it, it's $40. Um, and I, same thing with in Ireland. I don't know, I haven't, I mean, they do in, so it depends on where you are. In UK, so if you're under the NHS in the UK, yes, that is, it's a funded test, but um, I don't know about Ireland, but there are so many ways that we can get um, order testing online and, mm. and stuff like that. So it's generally around that mark, 40 New Zealand dollars, 20 pounds, 20 euro type thing. So, um, and I just think that's such a good thing for people to check every sort of six months. So you know what your vitamin D is like in the summer when you're feeling good. And then you also know kind of what happens to it in the winter and how much you need to supplement to keep it at an optimal level. Um, I've had so many patients who, even in summer, their vitamin D is quite suboptimal. So, um, really? you know, we need to, yeah. And even if they're out in the, in the sun. And also too, I think 
you, you definitely can't get it when you're wearing sunscreen. So if you're going out uh -huh. in the sun, and especially in New Zealand where we have zero ozone layer left, and you, yes. you know what it's like, or you go out into the sun and you're burnt with crisp in what, like five minutes? Yeah. Outrageous. Um, I bet you fell for that trick when you oh, man. I just got, so it's, it's like a magnifying glass, just like beats down you. But Wellington's um, Wellington was pretty windy, but when it gets warm, you don't, you don't, it doesn't even feel as warm, but it just, just burns you. You go home, you're just like yeah. red. But it's definitely not that warm <laughs> in Wellington, to be fair. But that's, um, that's pretty interesting to think that that vitamin D, like even though you've got sunscreen on, you're not really absorbing any vitamin D into your skin. So, so with that, how does vitamin D absorb? Does it absorb through the hands? Does it absorb through the face? So what way does it Yeah, anywhere that BSN is. But what it, what it does, you've, you've got actually the receptor in your skin. It's basically the, what the sunlight is doing is activating that in the skin. So it's not that you um, think about it like it's already there. You just need the sun to activate it but the ray can't pass through the sunscreen to actually do that activation. So I kind of choose where, what I expose. So for example, I'm not going to expose my face because I'm vain, but I will expose like my forearms because they already like, you know, they, they get to see the sun a lot more as well. And so they yes. tend to not get as burnt so easily. And I'm, I am lucky. I am some more all of these kind of skin, but I don't tend to burn there once they've kind of been exposed a few times to the sun. Um, I can get away with being outside more like 10 minutes before, before I need to put sunscreen on or before I need to cover up with a shirt. So um, the, they say it, it's about to, to expose that skin for half the time it takes to go pink, which in Ireland, in the UK <laughs> is easy. In New Zealand, you're like, what? So I have to put a timer on for two minutes 50 or something <laughs> like that. So, but you know, like around about that. So we don't want to get you burned, but we also want to make sure that there is some parts that's been exposed without sunscreen. Probably it's not really, it's not a supplement that's kind of, um, I had a, a female girl recently, she went to the doctors and um, two females actually. And, you know, of all the supplements that, that the doctor kind of offered, it was like um, a fat loss pill. But it's kind oh, yeah. of crazy, it's crazy like how like a simple vitamin D supplement, like is still, it's not promoted enough. Like, you know, people are all promoting these fads and stuff, but there's no promotion of like the simple vitamin D and like magnesium mm. and like just the small little stuff that we probably all lack to be fair. Like I take vitamin D myself and magnesium and I'm probably not lacking, but there's no, there's probably no really studies that you can never have too much really, is there? No, there's not. And I mean, there are a lot of studies that for magnesium that we generally don't get enough. You know, I think it's about two thirds of the Western world don't get enough vitamin, sorry, no, don't get enough magnesium from their diet. Um, and then there's all of the um, debate around what is actually, you know, are we just looking to make sure people aren't magnesium deficient or are we actually looking to make sure they've got enough magnesium for the, all of their cells and receptors and stuff to work optimally? And that's where I think that most of the, you know, if we just look at research and say, right, we just, we don't want you to be magnesium deficient, which is when you look at, say, the reference ranges for vitamin D, the reference range is there to, the reference range is what you would get on your laboratory report when you go get your vitamin D test and it would say, right, your vitamin D is 30 or 34. And the reference range is between 30 and 100, right, for example. Yeah. Um, and you're at 34 and you're like, cool, so I'm above the reference range. Where is what that reference range is, is really just we, what we know from the research is below 30 means that you're severely vitamin D deficient, right? Like you don't actually have enough vitamin D for um, basic processes. What we don't, what, what that range doesn't tell you is, well, what's actually optimal for the human body, right? So, and that's much higher, you know, from the research, we, we can see that the reference range is actually should be more like 50, for example. These are not real numbers, by the way. Don't take these into account. No. Um, as God, but the, that would be, for example, that could easily happen where actually the level between what's optimal and what's going to make you deficient is very, very different. And so what I focus on is actually what's, what the research is saying is what's optimal for the human body to perform and for all of our cells to function properly, not just to stop deficient, you know, incredible deficiency. Yeah, and for that leads me into my next one is a big thing for me, which I've really found hard to kind of find information around is like birth control, you know, because I've got some mm -hmm. clients who have PCOS and don't have PCOS, but then have birth control and there's some females don't get any, you know, they don't menstruate at all and there's some people that do menstruate. So it'd be quite good to kind of know a bit more like birth control and how that affects, you know, menstruation and kind of fat loss and weight loss. 
from your knowledge? Yeah, so a really interesting one. And it's probably one of the ones that most females, not just females with PCOS, but most females will be told to go on at some point in their life. And most of the time it's not just for contraception. It's for something else like, oh, you've got acne or oh, you've got heavy painful cycles. Oh, you've got irregular cycles. Okay. And it's, the answer is always hormonal birth control. It's like, right, this will regulate that. And so I think you need to take it into looking at it in two different points. As a contraceptive, hormonal birth control is incredible. One of the best things that you can, that is available to us in terms of a contraceptive. It's very easy. It's very convenient. Um, so really good for that. What I'm not such a fan of is for use of um, kind of being a band-aid for a lot of these other issues where um, just to kind of give you a period or fix issues where it's like, okay, you're getting acne, right? We'll put you on hormonal birth control rather than actually figuring out what the root cause is and treating that instead. So what hormonal birth control does is there's lots of different types. Um, I've actually done a three mega three part series on different birth controls. I can send that to you, Paul, um, if you want to share that. But what it, the, what it does uh, generally, if it's the combined pill, so the combined pill is estrogen and progesterone. And what that does, is it, it basically stops your brain from ovulating. So it says to your brain, hang, you don't need to ovulate. I'm going to deal with this now. I'm going to deal with these hormones. And it gives you a synthetic form of estrogen and progesterone to sort of mimic what your cycle does, but it doesn't do the same job. So the result is that you don't ovulate. Yeah. And, but what happens is that because it, it's mimicking the estrogen and progesterone, as soon as you start taking the sugar pills or you just don't take them at all, your body has that decrease in progest in progestin, the synthetic progesterone, and your body thinks, oh, okay, it's time for my period. And it sheds the lining of the uterus and that's what give you, gives you the bleed. Whereas a normal cycle, a normal period happens when you have ovulated. So um, if you ever look, if you ever Google, or you could do it now, bring up on your Google, um, just put in, um, female menstrual cycle and you'll see there's like those graphs and you might remember these yes. from biology but in the first half of your cycle there's there'll be two lines rising one is estrogen and one is follicle stimulating hormone and those are basically getting your egg ready to ovulate okay yeah. they're the growing the egg so that it's by the time your body's ready to ovulate it's at a good size that if you did want to conceive it would be able to do so then in the middle, you have this hormone called luteinizing hormone. It shoots up and it, it's what kind of is like a, I think of it like a pinball machine. It like pings it out of the ovary and into the fallopian tube. And if there's waiting sperm there, it'll be like, boom, we have a conception. If not, then your progesterone is going to start rising because it thinks, okay, we, we might have a baby here. So it starts to build the nest like a, a, a bird to protect the egg. And that, um, that's what progesterone does. But as soon as progesterone realizes that you're not actually pregnant, it will go, oh, okay, well, there's no point having this lining, this nest here because you're not pregnant anyway. So it'll start to decrease. And that's, that's the trigger for your body to shed that lining. So the trigger to get a period is ovulating in a normal cycle. In a, in a period, in a like pill bleed, that's what we call a, a bleed that's caused by hormonal birth control. Yeah. The trigger is when you stop taking that progestin pill. Does that make sense? Yes. So if you if if you have a female that doesn't get any kind of bleed for the you know no bleed whatsoever, how does that affect them with just say training and nutrition compared to someone that has a normal like you know two week on like follicular phase and luteal phase? How is there a difference in in how the body works? So the um, the two hormones, the estrogen and progesterone, are the, are the two ones that we're talking about when it comes to performance, and they do quite different things. Yeah. So just think about your estrogen as your performance hormone, and then progesterone is kind of like the calming hormone as well. So in someone that has a who's not getting a period at all, basically what's happening is that unless you are on some other hormonal birth control or some other hormone that's stopping you from getting a period, basically what's happening is that your body is continually trying to ovulate. So as saying before about that estrogen and follicle um, stimulating hormone that are trying to grow that egg to size and then that luteinizing hormone that shoots up, when, you have, when you're not getting a cycle, basically what will happen is that your body is trying to grow that egg and then trying to get the pinball machine to work. But it's like when you kind of just miss the pinball machine and you're like thumb slide off and it's like, whop, whop, and it's like doesn't quite, you know, the ball doesn't quite reach. That's what's happening. And so your body's like, okay, we'll try again. So it like raises that estrogen and follicle stimulating hormone again. And it will do that basically every two, 10 days to two weeks until it can finally ovulate and then you'll get a period. And this is what is really common in many females. They might not get a cycle. They might not get a period for 50, 60, 70, 90 days. And that's basically what your body is doing that whole time. So 
I mean, you're, what's happening is there, there is that your estrogen is kind of constantly high. You're not getting that second part, the progesterone. Um, so in terms of performance, I mean, the estrogen cycle, estrogen part of the cycle is when you are more likely to get your PRs, um, more likely to have performance gains and stuff. So if anything, maybe it is better, you know, you can potentially still get those PRs and stuff if you've got a long cycle. But um, often what happens is when you don't have that estrogen and then the progesterone cycle is that things just get a bit haywire and the estrogen sometimes is too high. And then you're getting a lot of other symptoms, maybe like bloating and pms kind of symptoms. Um, and so it's, um, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily known from the research what would happen for someone performance-wise if they're not getting a cycle, not yes. or getting like a 90-day cycle. But in someone that is getting a like a you know a regular kind of 28-day cycle, the best time to hit your PRs is really in those first two weeks, even from on your period, right? And this is a really interesting research that's coming out. Um, many women do their best PRs at Olympics and stuff like that when they're on their period. And I think this yes. is a really big thing because you or you would automatically think that's your worst time and you need to kind of take a rest and stuff. And for some women it is. Some women have really painful cycles and it's really hard for them. But for other women that don't, I would say that is your time to be trying to push it in the gym. That is a, that is one of your like heavier phases of your training. And then as the week before your period, that's when you want to do your deload week because that's when your progesterone's low and you are less likely to be able to actually achieve those PRs. Yeah, that's been the massive learning for me is um, learning about the, especially the flicker and the luteal phase. And, you know, for, for my females at the moment, I have them, as you say, in the first week one and two is when they're lifting the weights and going heavy. Then week three, then we kind of do machine works. And then I say week four, then it's kind of deload. And I get my clients mm -hmm. to maybe stretch and just have more food because your body's already pretty stressed. So it's quite good for them to, that's been the biggest learn I can take from is, is separating them two phases. Because when I was in the gym floor, like I was, you know, I was guilty of, treating kind of male and female you know they'd phrase same you know you can push a man pretty hard but then you try to do the same to a female like week in week out it's just kind of asking for disaster isn't it yeah and i think too is that as a when you're doing that as well you're kind of like oh my god why can't i lift the same as what i did last week and you feel like such a failure and you get quite down about it and then it's like next week everything's fine again and you're like huh Oh, that was weird. And then you don't really think about it. But suddenly when you start to note that down, you're like, oh my God, this is the same thing happens every month, right? The same time. And that's the kind of time that also you might feel really like emotional. You might get really like anything like me. You just, you know, one day where you're like, oh my God, I think I've got depression. And you'll start Googling everything about depression. You'll be like convinced that it is. And then the next day, because you're just crying at a drop of a hat. And then the next day you're totally fine. And you're like, oh, and then your period comes and you're like, oh, that was why. And then, so that's kind of the week. Think about that week as the week that you really want to be taking, backing it off from, um, from training. So the same thing doesn't apply if you are on hormonal birth control. Yes. Right. So I think that's the big thing is that if you are on hormonal birth control, you are, as I was saying before, your those hormones stop your body from producing its own estrogen and progesterone. So you're not going to get that cyclical nature in terms of, and so the result is um, that one of the you know downsides of hormonal birth control is that we, it likely reduces the amount of muscle mass gains that you can get. And there's some yeah. really interesting study on adolescence and hormonal birth control and where they've done, they, you know, measured, took two girls and they put one group on hormonal birth control and another group didn't go on hormonal birth control, put them on exactly the same training regime and for, you know, a few months and then measured them at the end. And those that weren't on hormonal birth control did have an increase in muscle mass. Those that were on hormonal birth control, no increase in muscle mass or much reduced. Can't remember exactly what the stat was, but that's one thing that, you know, we're often not told about hormonal birth control is that it can stop your ability to, you know, significantly reduce your ability to gain muscle mass. That's interesting. So I you know at the moment where I have my client is the girls that are not on birth control for the first two weeks, that's when they're kind of in deficit. Then week three mm. or four, and then I always spike up their calories. So for someone on birth mm -hmm. control, they could be in a kind of a slight deficit for the full month compared to someone that's not on birth control, is it? Essentially. Yeah. I mean, it's because the thing is they're not, you know, it's a completely different way that their body is working. I haven't looked into it in, like, in depth to understand what it would be in the calorie but yeah you're right and the in terms of you know your your calorie burning it's the progesterone phase the second half where you're, you're burning more calories so um 
you are so progesterone increases your calorie burn. It can be up to about 400 calories mm. um, in that second half. So that's, but it's also the time where you're more likely to get cravings and stuff like that. So that's why it's quite good not to then force another kind of more calorie deficit because you're probably in a bit of a calorie deficit anyway because it's your body is naturally burning a bit more. Yes. So that's what I was going to lead on to. With, with PCOS and my clients, and just say someone hasn't got PCOS, is the cravings higher for someone with PCOS compared to someone who hasn't got PCOS? If they, uh, yeah, it can be, but it's more likely to be due to the insulin rather than anything, you know, rather than like the higher testosterone. Um, but yeah, really, really common, really common to get really severe sugar cravings. And this is to do with that insulin, um, especially when it goes high and then it drops down quite low after, you know, after your Uber driver's managed to get the door open, you get inside and then he's like telling all his mates, right, you can go home now. And so you've got this, you know, um, insulin might be a hundred and then suddenly drops, you know, to one or something like that. So you get quite this deficit and that can trigger severe, you know, sugar cravings and hangry attacks is another really common one, especially for um, many women with PCOS is that they find that, you know, two hours after eating their, you know, it's sort of like not hungry, not hungry, so hungry. I am literally going to eat your head off. That is the like a really common pattern. And again, it's due to insulin kind of going high and then going down really low um, to, you know, simplify it a lot, but that's kind of what's happening. And so really it's about when we balance, when we try and improve your insulin resistance and balance that insulin, that's when we see improvements in sugar cravings and hanger attacks and stuff like that. And obviously then for, you know, for PCOS resistance training is always going to be the key, isn't it? Like I have my clients, maybe do a day yeah. resistance training, a day cardio and kind of have that mixture. And that seems to work the best. It just seems to really get the flow going. Yeah, hundred percent. No, you're definitely right there. Um, and the reason being that that's going to improve insulin sensitivity. So that's what's, you know, when we're trying to decrease the amount of Uber drivers is having to call in from a hundred to 70 to 50 that increase in muscle mass is what's going to do that. So that's what I was saying before about how, yes, diet plays a significant role, but so does that, you know, vitamin D and other supplements. So does um, resistance training exercise. So does sleep. Sleep's another really, really important, important one. It's so overlooked. Um, so yeah, you're on the money there with the resistance training. Yeah, because I find it's a massive difference. Like the girls I have that have peace rest, like they're just, they're, once they get like lifting weights and getting stronger, there's, there's such a hunger. They just want words. Mm. If I've got girls who don't have peace rest, they're kind of more like to go running and cardio. Whereas the girls have peace rest, they they just love the weight room and they get such good satisfaction like lifting weights. And it's it's so hard for girls like to get into the habit of lifting weights and because it can be quite a daunting place like going into a gym floor like and lifting weights. We've got all the men and it's a kind of hard one to overcome. But I guess leading from that, like what would your advice be for someone with PCOS, like not to be comparing themselves to others? Because I know a lot of my clients. They kind of every week, like they compare themselves to you know Sally down the road who hasn't got PCOS, and I always I always use an analogy like that. PCOS is like walking to from Wellington to Auckland. It's like we're going to walk there, whereas if you haven't got PCOS, we're going to take we're going to take the airplane. The our end goal is still there, but we're just going to take a bit longer to get there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the the main thing is just to um, to realize that you're not going crazy. This is something that's happening. Because I think that a lot of women with PCOS have been told all their life that, especially if it's weight gain, it's like, it's your fault. You're not trying hard enough. You're not doing this. And so your natural reaction is to really be like, well, okay, then I'll go harder. Because if you're saying that I'm not doing enough, then I'll, I'll do more. And I will, and I'm, you know, and most people that I've come across, myself included, have been, um, have been trying so many different things for much of their life and seeing other people in their life there, whether it's their friends or their sisters or their cousin or whatever, who can eat the same thing as them, but yet they're not gaining weight. And it's like, well, how come this is me? Is it that they are secretly going out and running 10K in the middle of the night? Is that, that do I just not know about this? Is there some trick that I'm missing? But no, it's not. It is, this is just, you know, your body um, and really trying to get to the root cause of that. So what is it? Is it is it insulin that you're dealing with? If so, then you know, following a lot of these steps that we've talked about and, and working with Paul to get your resistance training up and utilizing what you have, not worrying about what you don't. So you you have more testosterone, you're gonna be better at lifting, that's gonna help improve insulin. So use that to your advantage. Um, and not trying to compare yourself to a physiology and a genetic 
makeup that you just don't have because you'd otherwise you're going to be miserable for your life if you're trying to look like Sally when Sally has the genes of a African and Ethiopian and you have the genes of a Irish potato famine survivor right like we are and and just remember that when the apocalypse hits we will be the ones that are surviving Sally she's gonna be gone <laughs> So I think that's the thing is just be like, right, we've got to just work with what we've got here. And this is my body and I can either fight it or I can actually either just go, hey, look, I'm just going to work with what I've got and have, you know, be the best that I can be and not worry about what, what Sally, the Ethiopian who's going to die anyway, is going <laughs> to. It's just a good Sally. way of put it. It's just Sally. Sally's a lovely girl. But she is a lovely Sally. girl, but no, but to be fair, she's got, she's got no chance when the apocalypse <laughs> But I guess from your point of view, like if you were to, if you were to like have, you know, five main tips for, for my clients and even for anyone listening to this podcast of like how, you know, five main good tips for peace best, like how to deal with it and how to kind of just keep going forward and not comparing what's your five good tips would you reckon? Cool. First thing, understand what that root cause is. So work with someone mm. who knows what they're talking about here and doing some testing and understand that for you because once you then know, okay, right, for example, if it is insulin, then you can be so much clearer in sticking to those changes long-term because you know what the problem is, right? And this is the thing is that those problems are only getting, going to get exacerbated as you get older and as insulin gets worse and then you know there's all these chronic conditions like type 2 diabetes that come around. So that would be the first thing. Let's assume that it is insulin resistance because it is for 80%. Now I'm going to give you the tips for that because otherwise it's all very hypothetical and yes. it's not very user-friendly. If that's okay, if it is insulin, first thing I would do is manage your sleep, right? So getting less than five hours sleep a night is going to reduce your insulin by 30%. So you need 30 wow. more, you know, Uber drivers, 30% more Uber drivers coming to knock on that door. That's going to make everything worse. It's going to make all your symptoms, your weight gain, your facial hair, acne, et cetera, far worse. So really focus on that because it's such a thing that our modern society undervalues and it's so stupid that we undervalue it because it's such an yes. important critical part of evolution and, and we would not have evolved to sleep if we didn't need it no second thing so that's that i would say you know like seven to eight hours minimum is what you should be getting and good quality sleep um second thing yeah get those right vitamins and minerals that your body needs so vitamin d would be crucial especially if you're in ireland at the moment and you are going to need at least a thousand IUs a day if you are trying to just maintain your vitamin D status, wow. right? So that's not even accounting for the fact that you may be deficient already. You may have been deficient through the whole summer. And so if you, you don't know, get a vitamin D test. If, you, uh, if your vitamin D is low, then you're going to need even more to get it up and then to maintain that. Um, so that would be another one. And the other kind of... There's lots of other supplements out there, but it kind of depends on what the problem is. So that's the really hard one when it comes to actually, you know, you can waste a lot of money on stuff that you don't need. Um, but the other one probably that you can test for, it's easy to, you know, do is vitamin B12. And that's a really important one, especially for those if you've been prescribed metformin, the drug for your insulin, because um, metformin, um, it drains B12 out of the body. So you need to replace that with a B12 supplement. Um, especially if you're not eating animal products because you only get B B12 from animal products as well. That would be, that would be the second thing. Third thing is um, reduce your sugar intake. So don't worry too much about the other carbohydrates like your, you know, your um, rice and quinoa and stuff like that for now. Just focus on the sugar because that's the most fast acting, highest GI. It's going to cause the most insulin explosion in your body and that's going to cause more issues. So just kind of focus on reducing that. Um, that down and the second or the the actually the the last thing but I should have said it previously was increase your protein at breakfast so this is one thing that um, if you have insulin resistance your as I said before your insulin is likely to be going up and down and that's what's causing these sugar cravings and the um, and the hangry attacks and so if you have a really high carbohydrate breakfast like the typical New Zealand Irish breakfast like cereal or porridge yes. oatmeal then um, may work really well for Sally likely does yeah. for you you're probably hangry as hell after two hours after having that and so I would say like try and increase that protein at breakfast even if it's just adding some protein powder into your oatmeal then do that because if you try and if you do what I said before and try and reduce the sugars but you're getting like really severe sugar cravings and I have been there I know what it's like 
and try and reduce them when you're still getting, try and reduce your sugar while you're still getting them is really hard. So try and increase that protein at breakfast first and then, you know, then you might find it a lot easier to reduce the sugar out of your diet. Some good tips there in fairness. Suppose protein, protein, few tips there like sleep. Sleep is a massive one. It's, that's one thing that so even me, like I used to overlook sleep so much. Mm. But, so for some of PCOS, there's no difference. Is there more difference in sleep compared to normal person or not really? Nah, there's no difference. It's just that um, even a normal person. So if you're genetically predisposed to have insulin resistance and you already have some insulin resistance, then, then lack of sleep is going to make that worse. Right. It's also going to make you crave simple carbohydrates and, yeah. you know, and calories. And, and so if you've already got that insulin resistance, then it's just, you're just going to be feeding the fire with gasoline type thing. If you're getting lots of sleep and you're trying, you know, you're trying to best to stay away because I've just told you to stay away from sugar and yet you find yourself at the vending machine at 3 PM because yeah. your body's like, I need this because you didn't give me enough sleep last night. So it's not, it's no different, but it's just, you may be more, um, yeah, if you've already got that insulin, it's just going to make things worse. Whereas someone else like Sally doesn't have insulin resistance, so she probably can get away with it a little bit more than what you can. Yeah. So like, you know, good sleep and I suppose a high protein diet and some good resistance training, you're, 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 you're on that first step, ain't you? Yeah, exactly. So the one that, of course, I didn't mention before was resistance training, because I know that's what you talk about a lot. Mm. So it's sort of that, these are just the other things apart yes. from, but yeah, I mean, I I personally haven't gone from being a purely endurance athlete to now pretty much a purely gym, you know, like lifting lifting heavy weights kind of three to four times a week and, and then doing lots of like walking and um, I sort of a bit of running and stuff like that. And, but mostly otherwise it's, it's stuff that I, my cardio is stuff that I love. It's going mountain biking. It's yes. going skiing. Although I don't think you can really call that cardio because you sit <laughs> going uphill, but, you know, like it's doing, doing stuff that I love on the weekends, being a bit of a weekend warrior. And then otherwise trying to get into the gym about three to four times a week for my strength training. So, and it's made such a difference to my body. And your students, so you're, you're, you're in the gym three times a week, just lifting weights and doing strength training. Then. Yep. So are you, are you trying to each week trying to progress or do you kind of just, how do you manage you? Do you like go for, you know, six reps, eight reps, 12? What's a good way for you with your body? I found that it is quite, um, I need some variation there to stimulate my muscle growth. Like I'm, so I'm a very much a, um, so I'm very much like muscle fiber wise. I'm very much built for endurance exercise. So I struggle to gain muscle mass at all. Um, so for me to put on muscle mass is quite a feat. So yes. for me, it kind of needs different stimulation to cause hypertrophy. So yes, some different, like some heavy low rep, but then some also some higher, higher, higher rep mixed in there is what I found that I need. And what's your view then with um, with hit training compared to resistance training? I think so much people get hit training mixed up. They try they're trying to do like twenty five minutes, you know, flat out burpees, and I think that's not really. You can do a good hit session in two minutes, and I don't think people realize that. Yeah, totally. I think too is that a lot of people, as you said, it's, it it gets a bit mixed up, and they they go and do like a you know a Les Mills Brit class, and then you know they think, oh well, I'm not losing weight doing that, so I'll do two back to back quick classes and, or, you know, and, um, and I see this a lot, you know, both from my own experience and a lot of other women is, is that you, and also because they're quite addictive, you know, their endorphin rush is quite addictive yeah. for their high intensity training and stress hormones are a really big problem in PCOS as well. So this is when I come back to that root cause. So it really depends for me on what's happening for that female. What is her insulin like? What is her stress hormones like? And if her stress hormones are high, I'm cutting hit. That's one of the first things I'll cut is go right. You, your stress hormones can't handle this at the moment. doesn't mean you will never be able to do it again, but we need a break for this now. And we need to try and sort out those stress hormones because your, where your stress hormones are, are produced from. So stress hormones, if you don't know what I'm talking about there is like cortisol and adrenaline, you know, those ones that you feel when you step out in front of a bus and you go, yeah. Oh my God, like should I nearly got hit? That's your adrenaline and it's um, cortisol is the one that acts longer than just those initial few seconds. And when you are doing, when, when you're stressed in anything, so whether that's job stress or financial stress or exercise stress, is that that cortisol is going to rise and it stimulates your adrenal glands to also produce a testosterone-like substance called DHEAS, which is also 
getting into your hair follicles, causing abnormal facial body hair growth, getting into your causing acne, hair loss, etc. So, um, yeah, so PCOS symptoms generally get worse when they are high. And so that's the thing is why I'm trying to also manage those and keep those down. Um, so if, if I know what that level is, then I'm sort of recommending, you know, that they probably take a break from HIIT for a while and just focus on set on kind of strength exercise. And I think too as well, like a lot of females, when they get into doing the strength exercise, they'll kind of just do it as a HIIT session where they'll be like, okay, I'll get, lay out my dumbbells and my, and a barbell or whatever, and I'll do it like a little circuit and I'll try and do it as fast as I can and move between the sessions. And so I get a bit of cardio too. So it's, that's not really how it works. So what you want to be channeling, as I say to my clients with high stress hormones, I'm like, go in and just channel the laziest boy in the gym that you've ever seen. Like, you know, the one with like the hoodie up and he's you're like, are you even breaking a sweat, bro? He's like, nah, <laughs> like that's kind of who you want to channel in there. Like, it's just like lifting heavy, but not as fast as possible. Not, you know, trying to absolutely like smash yourself and, and come out of the gym being like, whoa, I can just go and sleep for an hour because that is not what you're trying to achieve. That's insane. I guess it brings me on to the last point there and um, coming back to PCOS. Obviously, if you have your normal cycle, week four, your little phase is probably where you're, you're the most stressed. But if someone out there just said their cycle might be every once every five or six weeks and they're not on birth control, how does their stress levels compare to that cycle being broken, like, so they're, they're menstruating every five to six weeks. How does that compare to a normal, just say, 28-day cycle with stress levels? So it's just that the estrogen phase or the follicular phase is just a little bit longer. So unless you know, so you can know this. I mean, females can really easily track their cycles and know when they're ovulating and when they're in different phases just by measuring their body temperature. It's a little bit, you do have to learn how to do it and learn the rules, We've got a little seven-day program called Educated that helps you do that if you do want to know how to do this. So it's that's like a pun, Educated, E-G-G-D-U-C-A-T-E-D.com. So that's like a little seven-day course that you can learn exactly how to do that. Um, and But what would generally happen is that that um, first half of your cycle is just pushed out by a week or so. So if, um, if it's normally, say, four weeks and yours is six weeks, then you just probably add on another two weeks to the first half of your cycle. So generally the second, this you you won't have a luteal phase for more than say 16 days. If you do, you're pregnant. Yes. So it'll be, yeah. So that's kind of how you can how you can measure it. Some people have a really short luteal phase. This is a problem if they're trying to conceive. Um, and that would also, yeah, would also be termed a, an irregular cycle. But we could just say, if we don't know, let's just assume it's about 14 days. So you your fillet, your first half of your cycle ended on week four and then you have your luteal phase for two weeks so that would be kind of what i would do is i just push out your training i wouldn't say though when it comes to training it's a little bit hard isn't it to go right well do we go four weeks ramp up yeah because that's a long that's a lot of volume and training and stuff right like you're more likely to get injured and yeah. lots of other things so when it comes to training i'd probably still do a four weekly four or five weekly phase but just maybe have 10 days or something like that where it's a little bit you deload so maybe you have a five week phase and four weeks you build up and then 10 days you build down or something like that rather than if it's even longer if it's say like a 60 or 70 day cycle then i would probably disregard it and just do a four weekly phase and then when you do if you are tracking your cycle and you do know that you have ovulated, then it's a bit easier to then be like, cool, right. Well, this, you know, the next week after, you know, cause the first week after you, after you've ovulated, you tend to be okay. It's the week before your period. You'll know when it's coming now. Whereas, cause most people with a 60 day cycle, they don't know when their period's coming. So they're like, I've got no idea. Yes. So if you're tracking it and you know when you've ovulated, then it's much easier to then be like, cool. So I'm going, I'm going to do another deload week this week. I know it's not really in the routine, but I'm going to have my period next week. And I just, I know I'm going to need it. So you can sort of mix with, you know, work it like that way. Now that's really good because that's, that's probably a big issue that a lot of my girls face is like have that broken period. It's just knowing like if it goes from four to five to six, like how to train and, and diet around it. But that's, that's really mm. good. That's been, um, oh. it's been absolutely fantastic. Have you on been really enjoyable. I've learned a lot. Hopefully my clients learn a lot. Hopefully I'll yeah. get back, back to New Zealand some days to where you went <laughs> But I guess for I me, like, say, hopefully we'll be back here soon. Who knows? But I guess for anyone who doesn't know who you are, Claire, I suppose if you could just 
let us know how people can find you, how people can learn more about you and even help themselves. Yeah, sure. So we are on Instagram, on Facebook, um, on our website, and also on our podcast as The PCOS Nutritionist. All one word. So on our website, thepcosnutritionist.com. Um, same thing, Instagram, The PCOS Nutritionist, all one word. And then our podcast, which is on Apple, Spotify, etc. The PCOS Nutritionist podcast. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's where you can find us. Absolutely fantastic. And it's been a pleasure having you. Yeah, so nice. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a great chat. Thanks, Lara.